Peace be with you. All right, you could probably, you could just stay standing. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word here in a minute. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 John 2, 12 through 17, 1 John 2, 12 through 17, thank you for being here this morning. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas State, and we are so glad that you're here this morning. Take a moment, fill out the Connect card. It's in the bulletin you received when you walked in this morning. We'd love to get to know you a little bit and, and uh, maybe get together with you, buy you a cup of coffee, hear about your life, hear your story. We'd love to, to kn- get to know you a little bit. All right, uh, let's look at 1 John 2, 12 through 17. And this is the reading of God's Word, so let's listen with reverence and joy. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you anoint the reading and preaching of your word now with the presence and power of your spirit? Would you open our hearts to receive what you have for us here? Would you open our ears to hear your voice? Would you open our eyes to behold Jesus? Behold the glory that you have for us in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, as we've been walking through 1 John for several weeks, John's been saying some hard things. Uh, He's been presenting some challenges uh, and tests for his hearers in order for us to test ourselves to see whether or not we're truly in the faith, he's, he's helping us learn how to uh, practically, as the Apostle Paul puts it, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, which means uh, that he's helping us to discern the authenticity of our profession as Christians. He's helping us discern whether or not we are authentically trusting in Christ. And so far, we've seen him do that by offering a devotional test, a devotional test wherein we are challenged to look at our practices and, and obedience as Christians. Uh, are we giving ourselves to practices like the confession of sin? Are we looking to Christ daily for forgiveness for our sins? Uh, and not only that, but are we thereby growing in obedience to Him and to His commandments? Are we becoming more and more like the loving Jesus? And then we saw John give uh, what, what we're calling the, the social test. You know, Christianity is not an individualistic religion concerned with our private beliefs and practices alone. It's a social 
religion. It's one wherein you are saved not only from sin and Satan and death, but also you are saved into the believing community in which the people of God love one another because in light Christ has loved us. And the loving community is a powerful piece of evidence that that there is authentic faith. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And now next week, we're going to see John give what we call the doctrinal test. Before we get there, John makes a little bit of a digression. He actually makes two digressions. He digresses, he leaves his line of thought for a moment, and he digresses first about the church in verses 12 to 14, and then he digresses about the world in verses 15 to 17. In the first digression, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's almost as if John is saying, I know I've been saying some, some hard things and giving you some hard challenges, but I want you to know it's not because I believe you're inauthentic in your profession of faith. It's because I'm sure that you are authentic and I want you to be sure of it too. And then in the second digression, he gives these Christians an exhortation to resist worldliness and a warning about it creeping into their lives. And he exhorts them not to love the world, but to instead look forward to the age to come and to live for it instead. And so what we find in these two digressions this morning is a simple message concerning what Christians possess, what Christians resist, and what Christians look forward to. We see it up here. Christians resist the world because of what we possess and look forward to in Christ. What Christians possess, what Christians resist, and what Christians look forward to. That's what we're looking at this morning. And So first, we'll see what Christians possess. So we'll look at this first digression that the Apostle Paul makes, and and I love this because right in the middle of this letter, John writes a poem. He writes a poem. I love this. I love poetry. Look look with me, starting at, at verse 12. The Apostle writes, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So for several paragraphs now, John has been confronting and challenging, but now he turns and he changes his tone to be more consoling. He wants to console the Christians in in his midst who are struggling with some of what he's been saying. He wants to console the Christians who are struggling with assurance. And so he writes to say, your sins are, not might be, they are forgiven. You do, you you do know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You do have strength. You are strong to overcome the evil one. You do, I know you do. Be encouraged, he says. But again, he does this by means of poetry. And so instead of simply saying, all of you, all your sins are forgiven, all of you, you have fellowship with God and with Christ, you have strength to overcome the evil one, he he addresses, he says, little children, fathers, young men, by which John, this is John's way of saying, like, all of you, all of you, from, from the oldest to the youngest, those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, and those of you who are new to the faith, and everyone in between, all of you. And then he tells them what they possess. First, he tells them about their forgiveness. It says in verse 12, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Your sins are forgiven. 
And this is in the perfect passive meaning that it is a once and for all done deal. Your sins have been completely forgiven. And never ever will they come up and condemn you before God. Now when we talk about forgiveness in this way, it's, it's a little different from what we saw when we looked at 1 John 1, 9. We saw a few weeks ago, we saw John say, if we confess, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That was concerning what theologians refer to as filial forgiveness. It's the kind of forgiveness like a, a son or daughter, a family member receives from another family member when they've disobeyed. You know, it's the kind of forgiveness that takes place when you're already in good standing with the one who is forgiving you. You're already in the family. Because, you know, when, when you sin, even though you're already in the family, even though you're in, when you sin, it can still cause tension. It can still cause a rift in the fellowship. And, and so you must confess that sin and receive filial forgiveness. However, what John is referring to here is what theologians call forensic forgiveness. This is legal forgiveness. This is once and for all forgiveness. This is the forgiveness that brings you into the, into the position of being a son or daughter. And John wants you to know that, Christian, you have, have been given once and for all full and free forgiveness on account of Christ. It's for his name's sake, he says meaning you're forgiven because of him. Like when, when he died on the cross, your sins were laid upon him. And when you trusted in him, his righteousness was credited to your account so that you could stand before God complete, freely and fully forgiven, freely and fully justified, freely and fully adopted as a child of God, as his very own beloved child forever. You are forgiven, John says. And John wants you to be sure of it. He wants you to be sure of it. Oh, this, this brings such peace in the heart of the Christian. This brings such rest in the heart of the Christian. You know, you know I read some time ago the words of the president of this, this mental, uh, the president of this mental health hospital in England. He said, he said, I could free half my patient, patients tomorrow if I could just convince them that they are forgiven. You know, Christian, you, you, you don't need to be weighed down with guilt and shame and anxiety over your sin. You don't need to fear judgment. Christ has drowned your guilt in the blood of his cross, and he's taken it away forever. And because of his forgiveness, he gives you fellowship with God and with himself forever which is also what John says. He says here in verses 13 and 14, he's writing because you know him who is from the beginning. That is, you know Christ who is from the beginning, as we saw in 1 John 1, 1. Christ is the one who is from the beginning. And not only that, but then he also says in verse 13, he's writing because you know the Father. Of course, this should bring to mind what the apostle said in 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm writing this to you to give you assurance that you have fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ, His Son. You know the Father and you know Christ. 
that, forgiven, that forgiveness that you've been given was not just given as an end in and of itself. That forgiveness was given so that you might be reconciled to God, so that you might be brought into his kingdom and in his presence as his very own beloved children, so that you would know God as Father and that you would know Christ as your Savior and friend. An African bishop from the fourth century, St. Augustine, he once said, you have, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. As human beings, we were created to know and enjoy fellowship with God. And without knowing him and having fellowship with him, we, we live with a sort of a, a, a poverty of meaning. There's an, there's an emptiness and a restlessness that just can't be remedied apart from fellowship with him. We can try to fill it with any number of things. We can try to remedy that restlessness with any number of things. We'll get to that in a minute. But ultimately, only God, only knowing him, only in fellowship with him can we be fully alive as human beings. Only knowing God, having fellowship with him, can make us the kind of human beings that flourish in the way that we were meant to. In order to truly flourish and continue in our fellowship with God, we also need to resist something, which we'll be looking at in the next point. But for now, we also need to understand what we possess as Christians in order to truly resist what we need to resist. And so the third thing that John tells us we possess is fortitude. He writes in verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And he says in verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, people often point out that he says this particular part about strength and fortitude to young men, young people. You know, young people are typically known for their strength and their vitality and their health. So John says, young Christians have fortitude. However, I think this fails to grasp what John is talking about here. Notice in verse 14 where John says this fortitude comes from. He says, the word of God abides in you. There is the kind of strength needed to overcome in the Christian life found by abiding in the word of God. It comes from the word of God abiding in you. It comes from scripture and it comes from the scriptures abiding in you. A psalmist gets to this in Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. He says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Storing up God's word in your heart, listening to it read and preached, reading it and meditating on it and memorizing it, that's where fortitude comes from in the Christian life. And it's by God's word abiding in us that we overcome the evil one. This struggle is real. But victory is certain, says John, because as Christians we possess fortitude by the word of God and fellowship with God. And we have fellowship with God because we've been forgiven in Christ Jesus for his sake. But now John goes on to explain why we need this fortitude in his second digression. 
He exhorts us to resist the world. Second, see what Christians resist. The apostle goes on to write in verses 15 to 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, there's been no small amount of confusion concerning passages like this from John. You know, it's John who wrote, recorded Jesus' words for us in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves the world. But then he goes and says something like this, commanding us to not love the world. And of course, you know, whenever you're reading anything, the Bible included, you have to look at the context because the same word could be used to describe two or more different things depending on the, on the context. And that's, that's one of the cases here. So for example, recently I was talking to a close friend of mine in this church and, and I was telling him that I was thinking about buying uh, Amy a Dutch oven for Christmas. And I meant like this little pot that you cook things in and he thought I was talking about something else and, and there was a huge misunderstanding there. The context, when we think about words, it's important. And so we need to understand that the Scriptures use the word world in, in a few different ways. And first, sometimes when we see the word world, it simply means all the nations and, and peoples of the earth. And we're talking about the world in this sense. Yes, God loves the world, John three sixteen, and so should we because we're called to love people. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And second, sometimes we, when we see the word world, it's simply talking about uh, planet Earth, like this rock that we're on. We're called to, you know, again, yes, we're, we're, we're called to love the world in that sense because we are called to care for creation. God loves the planet Earth. He created it. It's his idea. He created it. One day he's going to renew it and glorify it with his presence so that we can live on the Earth with him forever and ever. So John doesn't mean the world in those two senses. And so because of that, this text is, is not a call to, to avoid people or discard social action or, or social justice or to avoid political involvement or refuse medical treatment or any of those uh, other things that uh, Christians, uh, cults, and sects have often done as they've misinterpreted texts like this. Rather, John means here, what's often the third meaning that we see in the scriptures, what John means here by the word world, he means the systemic sin and evil that opposes God and his kingdom in the earth. He means the systemic sin and evil that has Satan at its helm in the earth. To use John's language, he says, it's all that is not from the Father. It's all that is present in God's creation that opposes him. As one commentator puts it, the world in this context means the world that has rejected its creator and lives apart of, from his good and gracious rule. Another commentator puts it like this. They said, it's a system organized on wrong principles and characterized by base desires, false values, and egotism. This is what John calls us not to love. He calls us not to love the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. And so instead of loving the world and being worldly, John calls us to resist worldliness. He calls us to resist worldliness. 
really hard because this could describe the typical kind of life that the average Western person lives today. If you're wondering what that looks like, it's the typical kind of life that the average Western person lives in. And maybe it could even describe some of our lives and, and habits and practices and pursuits. And John helps us diagnose this. He goes on to describe a little bit of what characterizes worldliness. He says three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. First, John says that what characterizes worldliness is the desires of the flesh. And we should say very briefly that desires are not in and of themselves bad things. You know, just by nature of being human beings, we have desires. God created us with desires. Desire is not bad. You know, we desire food and drink and sex and relational intimacy and comfort. And none of that, if it is rightly used, is bad in and of itself. However, the word translated as desires here could just as well be translated as over-desires or even lusts. So the desires of the flesh here would mean to live a life that is dominated by or over-preoccupied with bodily, fleshly cravings. It's to live a life that is dominated by the senses. Rather than merely desiring and enjoying food, it's to be gluttonous, to overconsume. Rather than enjoying sex in its God-given context, heterosexual marriage, it means to be a slave to lust and sexual pleasure, adultery and pornography and the like. It means to be greedy and selfish in your use of money and possessions. It means to be extravagant and, and gratifying material desires, toys and trinkets, trimmings and trappings, all of it. It means to be overly indulgent with, with entertainment, social media and TV and video games and the like. It literally means to be dominated by the pursuit of pleasure in material things. A second John mentions the desires of the eyes, and this is similar to the desires of the flesh, but it's more specific because it, it narrows in as, uh, on one particular sense, the, the sight. Of course, we could probably all testify to the reality that our eyes are, are one of our body parts most susceptible to sin. Billboards and magazines and Instagram, and all, this is why all these things are so alluring and so successful. It's with our eyes that we look at status and success, people and possessions, and covet them and lust after them in our hearts. Desires of the eyes means to look at someone lustfully, means to gaze at money and possessions with greed. It means to covet that person's life who appears to have it all together on social media and to covet someone else's spouse, covet someone else's job or finances or home or car or whatever. The third thing that John says characterizes worldliness is the pride of life. Or the word life here is sometimes translated as possessions, the pride of possessions. And what this is referring to is, is to, to boast in and find your identity in what you've accomplished and acquired in life. Maybe the biblical image you see is the Tower of Babylon. And the Babylonians all came together to build a great city in order to 
make their name great in the earth. Genesis 11.4 tells us. Or perhaps a more modern example of this would be the great and celebrated American figure of a self-made man or woman who's achieved much and acquired much by pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. Self-promotion. It's boasting in status and possessions. It's being proud of our homes and our families and our toys and our trinkets, where we went to school, where we work, what we drive, all that. This is what characterizes worldliness. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And John goes on to say, pick one. God or the world. You can either love the world or love God. You cannot have both. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Sometimes in order to love some things, you have to hate other things. I listened to, uh, or I I read a story this past week about this. This young class is getting a tour of a hospital on a field trip, and this nurse was showing them around the hospital and at the very end of the tour, a kid raises his hand and he says, why do you, you guys always wash your hands? Why are you always washing your hands and using the little hand sanitizer stations outside of the, the hospital rooms? Why are you always doing that? And the nurse said, well, it's simple. It's because we love health and we hate germs. Sometimes to love one thing must necessarily mean that you hate another thing. And so it is with God and the world. If you love God, you hate the world. If you love the world, you hate God. What have you chosen? What appeals to you more, being being godly or outward prosperity? Are Are you crucifying your flesh with all of its passions and desires, or do you have a life of untethered consumerism? Another question. Are you content with where you are, what you are, what you have in life? Or are, are, you, are you habitually and chronically discontent, disguising it as ambition? Do you, do you regularly daydream about what it'd be like to make more money, to have a different house, to have a different car, to have a different spouse, about living somewhere else? Or do you stupidly think that if only one or more of those things would change, you'd finally be happy? What, what dominates your, your thoughts and your conversations? Is it entertainment and possessions and money and sports, or is it the things of the kingdom of God? What, what, what excites you more? The things of the kingdom of this world or the things of the kingdom of God? Do you, or do you get more excited about food and drink, entertainment and sports and toys? Or is it God's word? Is it fellowship with other Christians? Is it the Lord's Supper, getting to gather around the Lord's Supper every week? When I was telling you a few minutes ago that you have forgiveness and fellowship and fortitude, were you yawning your way through that and thinking about the, the game that's on later today? Or, or, or were you thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch? We need to ask ourselves these kinds of questions. These are, these are ways to diagnose what it is you love, the world or God. And you have chosen and you must choose one or the other. And let me tell you, if you want that rest, that peace, that soul-flourishing kind of life that we talked about earlier, 
then the one you must pick is God in his kingdom. You know, I, I want you to realize that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, this is the stuff that the Western world is made of. This is the stuff that the economy of the United States of America is built on. We are a society of untethered materialism and consumerism, and that's true of both the left and the right. And I want you to realize there's, there's never been a society that has had so much access to material pleasure. There's never been a society with quicker and easier access to stuff, to toys, to trinkets, to entertainment, to comforts unknown even to previous generations. There's never been a society that has, has, has had more access to sex, to good food and good drink and the rest of it. More, there's, there's never been a society that has indulged in those things more than we do. And so if those things could truly satisfy, if they could truly offer satisfaction, if they could truly offer the good life that we so long for, we would have it. But what do we see instead? What what do the studies show? Instead, Western people, American people, are more and more racked with anxiety. More and more, we're prone to outrage and to depression. We see the breakdown of the family and of meaningful relationships in our society. There's, there's likely never been a people who have had such an abundance of stuff, but there's also likely never been a people who have suffered from such a poverty of meaning and significance. Why is that? It's because these things don't truly satisfy They're good as far as they go. God created food and drink and sex and the earth's resources for us to utilize and enjoy, but to lust lust after them and over-desire them and find our identity in them and to pursue them instead of and at the expense of having a relationship with God is what leads to the deep and profound brokenness that we see all around us and maybe even within us. That's, you know, that's why something like minimalism is currently so popular. This is why people are asking Marie Kondo to come to their houses and help them get rid of some stuff. Maybe we're realizing that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life doesn't and can't satisfy. Here's the thing, though. Getting rid of some of your stuff and trying to live a minimalist lifestyle isn't the answer either. Marie Kondo can't deliver on the joy she's promising you. Because as John has already pointed out, the problem is within the desires of our hearts. The problem of worldliness is located within our hearts. The problem of worldliness is that it has captivated our affections and desires and imaginations. So the only way, truly, the only way to truly not love the world is, in fact, to love something else more, something better. An old Puritan pastor named Thomas Chalmers once preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Only a Puritan could title a sermon in that way. And then he says, you can't just stop loving the world and stuff. 
It needs to be replaced with something more beautiful, something more worthy. He says the, 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 the love of the world, he writes this, he says the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. But it can be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. He says that the, the, the human heart is constituted in such a way you have desires and you cannot get rid of your desires completely. And so the only way to get rid of worldliness in the heart is by ridding up, the, the only way to rid your heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection, by loving something else, something better, more. John knows this. He knows that in order to resist the world and forsake the world and hate the world, we need a greater love. We need to love something else more. Something else needs to capture our affections and our imaginations and our desires. And so it's for that reason that John tells us, tells Christians, he closes this particular exhortation by telling us what we have to look forward to. Lastly, what Christians have to look forward to. Verse 17, the apostle writes, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now remember what John means by the world here. Some muddle-headed Christians have read such passages and concluded that our eternal existence consists of an immaterial, ethereal kind of existence floating around on clouds, Looney Tune heaven, we like to call it around here. That's not what John is saying. Rather, he's saying, that John, uh, he's saying that God is going to take the systemic evil and sin that plagues the earth. He's going to take what opposes him and his good and gracious will. He's going to take the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, and he's going to destroy it. Therefore, the world in this sense is, is not permanent. The world and its ways are not permanent. It, it might be fun now. There might be temporal pleasure now, but there's no future in it. So John says, don't invest in it. Invest your life in something better. Invest your life in something more worthy. Invest your life in something more beautiful, something bigger than you, bigger than a moment's pleasure. And he tells us how we do that. He says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Or another translation puts it this way, whoever does what pleases God will live forever. Whoever does what pleases God, what pleases God, what we've seen so far, whoever confesses their sin and does not deny it, whoever obeys his commandments and is growing in obeying his commandments, whoever loves his neighbor as himself is growing and is growing in loving his neighbor as himself, whoever does that, whoever does what pleases God will enjoy life that is everlasting and abundant. You know, Christ is returning, and he's returning to make all things new, to renew all of his creation and to make it into a place without sin and sadness and sickness and suffering. Everything sad, when Christ returns, everything sad will become untrue. He's, turn, he's returning to wipe away every tear from our cheeks. He's returning to glorify the earth with the presence of God and to glorify our bodies so that our bodies are no longer subject to suffering and no longer susceptible to the desires of the flesh and eyes and the pride of life. He's returning to make our bodies like his own resurrected glorious body. 
He's returning to give us the kind of human existence that we were supposed to have. One without injustice. One without anxiety. One without depression. One without hatred. One without relational strain. One without division. It will be an existence of perfect flourishing, perfect peace, perfect shalom forever because we will have unhindered fellowship with God. Everything will be as it should be. And there will be no more tears. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.18 that whatever we're experiencing in this life, whatever we're currently experiencing in this life, it's not even worthy of being compared to what we will experience then. And so choose, John says, choose. Choose between a moment's pleasure and an eternity's joy. Pick one. Choose between a moment's pleasure and an eternity's joy. Choose between what is passing away and what abides forever. Choose between what moth and rust will destroy and what awaits for you in heaven imperishable. Choose between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And I hope you see it's no contest. Don't love the world. Love God. Love his kingdom. Rejoice in his forgiveness. Walk in fellowship with him. Receive his strength and fortitude to overcome the evil one and to resist the world. And look forward to what is to come because your future, Christian, is incredibly bright. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for what we possess in Christ, forgiveness, fellowship with you, fortitude to overcome the evil one. Would you strengthen us now as we have heard your word and are about to approach your table? Would you strengthen us now in order to resist the world, to resist worldliness, to repent of it in our own hearts? We know that we're, we're, we're helpless to simply remove the desires of the world and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life from our hearts, we know that you have to replace it with something better and that's life with you forever, life with you for eternity. That's the beatific vision, direct revelation of you to us, fellowship with you, unhindered by sin forever and ever. We want that, we want it so bad and we look forward to it. Lord, let that captivate our imaginations and our affections and our desires so that we would be driven to do what pleases you in this life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.